Welcome to the Davy Tree Expert Companies podcast, Talking Trees. I'm your host, Doug Oster. Each week, our expert arborists share advice on seasonal tree care, how to make your trees thrive, arborists' favorite trees, and much, much more. Tune in every Thursday to learn more, because here at the Talking Trees podcast, we know trees are the answer. This week, it's part one of a special two-part show covering everything you need to know about summer lawn care. Zane Roddenbush, turf and herbicide specialist with the Davy Institute in Kent, Ohio, is making a return engagement. Let's talk this week, Zane, about watering and reseeding. And I'll tell you what, my lawn has been struggling this summer during the hot, dry weather. The lawns look pretty toasty in my area in Worcester, Ohio, and I'm sure it sounds like the same for you in, in Pittsburgh. We just simply have not had the precipitation. I mean, uh, as we discussed previous to the call, since in my area, June 15th, uh, we've only received 1.6 inches of rainfall and 0.6 of that actually came last night. So it's like liquid gold, but we we could use another inch or two. And we really need one of those kind of all day soakers, these kind of heavy precipitation events. A lot of that, unfortunately, just runs off and gets into the stormwater system. The, the soils are that crusty. They're just not getting good infiltration. So yeah, this is, uh, it's gonna, if we don't get some much needed rainfall, you're going to see the effects of this long into the, to the autumn months, unfortunately. So tell me, what does the grass do when things dry out? Uh, because we're, I'm, I'm looking at the same thing in my area, you know, doesn't look good. Yeah. That's a great question, Doug. It's, uh, the answer to that depends a little bit on the species. So, you know, in, in our area, you're going to see lawns uh, might be sodded Kentucky bluegrass, uh, or they could be mixed stands of ryegrass and Kentucky bluegrass and the fine fescues. But, you know, Kentucky bluegrass is an interesting grass, whereas the soil moisture starts to draw down in the soil, that grass actually will go dormant as a drought avoidance mechanism. So it actually goes dormant. You'll see that it will turn off color. And this is just a total strategy to avoid uh, drought stress. And then when precipitation returns, uh, you'll see the plants will begin to green back up and begin to grow again. But, you know, Kentucky bluegrass lawns, when they're in a full dormancy stage, you'll see they won't grow. Like they could go indefinitely without needing mowed, et cetera. So um, what they're doing in terms of trying to conserve water is they close their stomata and, and it's just a total drought avoidance mechanism. And then uh, species like ryegrass and tall fescue, uh, they don't go into this dormancy mechanism. They begin to close their stomata and you'll see the effects of wilt starting, starting to take place, but they are more adapted to uh, withstanding high, high temperature stress, uh, drought stress, but they are the kind of plants that eventually uh, when the soil moisture gets so low, they can actually die. They don't go into that dormancy state. They will just actually turn completely necrotic. The crowns could begin to dehydrate, and those plants could actually die if they don't get some much-needed precipitation. So kind of the dichotomy is that Kentucky bluegrass maybe will throw in the towel early and go dormant, but when the precipitation returns, that plant will recover versus you might see things like ryegrass and tall fescue. They maintain better color longer. But they may reach a point where if you don't get precipitation, they could receive kind of irreversible damage. Um, so it is somewhat species dependent. Before I move on, explain that term to me, stomato. Is that, did I say it right? Yeah, you did, stomata. So 
you know, stomata are these small openings on the leaf blades. So uh, plants, you know, are a lot of the water, they say up to 98% of the water that a turf grass plant absorbs will be used for this process in the summer months of transpirational cooling. So the process of transpiration is basically the plants suck the water out of the soil from the roots. It goes up through the stems and the vascular tissue and then out the leaves through these small openings called stomata. And it's just like us as humans when we sweat, when we get hot, we, we perspire and that helps to keep us cool. Plants are doing the same thing as you basically evaporate that water out of the leaf blades from the stomata. Uh, it's releasing energy in the form of heat and helps to keep the, the leaf blade temperature you know, somewhat moderated. And that's where when the stomata close, those plants and the leaf blades begin to start the, the temperature increases. They literally will start to cook. So you need moisture in the soil and you need the stomata open. So you get this constant evaporation during the day of, of that water. And that helps to keep the plants cool. So yeah, so stomata, they have several functions. They help to let gases into the plant, but their primary purpose is to allow water to escape the leaf blades in the form of evaporation. And it keeps the, the, the leaf temperature moderated. Is it realistic for a homeowner to put enough water on that lawn themselves to keep that grass going when you have 90 degrees and no rain? Uh, realistic, you know, it, it can be done. You see professional sports field managers, golf course superintendents that they can kind of maintain an acceptable level of quality in temperatures like this. But for a homeowner, and a lot of the irrigation systems I observe in many of these home lawns that maybe don't receive the kind of uh, maintenance that a professional turf grass manager might put, uh, it is tough. You know, I think a real goal, a realistic goal for a homeowner is to really prevent those plants from entering that dormancy, irreversible kind of harm. So you're just trying to supply some soil moisture to keep the plants actively growing. I often see, Doug, people who you kind of, I don't want to say abuse those irrigation systems, but they can get themselves in, in actual more trouble from the effects of overwatering, which leads to a whole nother slew of issues with diseases and uh, can actually end up increasing soil compaction, et cetera. So to answer your question, I think, yes, it is possible to, you know, supply enough water to the lawn uh, during these periods. But uh, in my experiences, it's not necessary. You're really just trying to supplement enough to keep the plants growing. Uh, Over-irrigating, in my opinion, is far worse than under-irrigating. So let's talk a little bit about watering. Ideal condition for watering. Tell me tell me if you could do it just the way you wanted to do it for, for a homeowner, what would be the best way just to keep that lawn alive until we do start getting rain? Yeah, great question. Uh, you know, that's the textbook answer, but the, the idea of deep and infrequent watering is just you get the most bang for your buck. And what do I mean by deep and infrequent? Um, we sometimes go to customers' properties and I start looking at their irrigation timers. And during the months like this, they'll have the irrigation clock running every single day. So every day the irrigation system's coming on and it's watering for maybe 15 to 20 minutes. So that's light, light and frequent watering. We're looking for the opposite where maybe that system runs every four or five days and it might run for one prolonged period of time. If the, you know, if the slope or the topography is relatively level, you'll see on steep slopes, uh, we, you, we often do soak, uh, soak cycles where you run the system for some period of time, allow that water to infiltrate and come back and water it again. So maybe you actually have two run times like four in the morning and 
seven in the morning for things of steep slopes. But uh, deep and infrequent is the answer, Doug. So ideally, I like to see our customers watering sometime between the hours of six and eight a.m. And ideally, I like them to water when they can when I they can do what's called putting eyes on the system. So what I don't want to see is a scenario where the homeowner never actually sees their irrigation system running, uh, because that could be scenarios where um, heads aren't turning, zones aren't turning on, and the, the customer doesn't ever actually know that that's the case. So if there's a time period in the early morning hours when you're awake and you can be drinking a cup of coffee or whatever it is that you do and take a peek outside, make sure that the zones are turning on, all the heads are turning properly, you're not watering the street, um, et cetera. So timing, getting it in that early morning hours and then deep and infrequent. So, you know, in the, in the summer months, it, it could be, you know, if you're in a sandy soil, maybe every third day. Uh, but where we are, we have heavier soils that could be every four or five days. So uh, really under no scenario should someone be watering every single day unless it's a recently established lawn or they're trying to establish turf. Watering every day uh, just leads to a whole nother slew of issues. Well, you bring up a good point there of having eyes on it because the one thing that drives me crazy is seeing sp sprinklers run when it's raining. <laughs> oh. <laughs> no doubt. Drives me nuts too. It, it gives up people like myself and our profession kind of a stigma and a, and a bad name because there are those are easy things to fix. You know, many of these home irrigation systems can have rain sensors, rain tipping buckets. You know, we're to the point now where um, it doesn't, it's pretty cost effective to have a lot of these systems that have soil moisture sensors that are buried in your yard. They're communicating in real time with your irrigation clock and they simply won't allow the system to turn on if there's adequate soil moisture. So um, yeah, that, that drives me crazy as well, Doug. I have a lot of pictures that I post up there in presentations of what not to do. <laughs> so let's say that uh, I get through this hot dry period keeping it most of it alive but i start to see spots where i didn't keep grass alive when do i start to think about maybe throwing some seed down am i looking carefully at the weather do i have to wait you know i certainly don't want to put any seed down if if you're going to be hot and dry it's going that in that situation i think i would have to run water every day or every other day is that right to, to get that, to keep that seed moist and get it to sprout? When do we Correct. want to do that? That's a great question. Um, I think it depends on what the objective is. If it's kind of these little spot areas um, that you're trying to fill back in, um, you know, you could do that all the way, you know, starting as early as mid to late August, all the way through. I typically in our area don't recommend doing seeding after October 1st. I have done seedings after October 1st, some of which have you look like a rock star, been really successful, and others that turned out really poor. The problem can be once we get that first frost, that will really slow things down. It can even injure injure the seedlings. So, um, you know, the window starts there. I would not seed anything before mid-August. And even if, like you said, you're looking into the, the forecast and you see the 10 days is hot and dry, I would wait until you start to see that you're going to get some precipitation. But to answer your question, once you plant seed, there is, in my mind, nothing is more paramount than keeping the soil moist. Really, irrigation is the most important tool that you have as someone who plants turf grass seed. And to your point, if it's going to be hot and dry, it will it might actually be more than once a day. If you're not going to use some type of cover like a straw or a mulch 
and you're just going to seed onto bare ground, you'll probably actually need to irrigate very light, but two to three times per day to keep that soil from drying out. The worst thing you can do for young seedlings is allow them to go from, you know, a moist state to really dry down. That really decreases the uniformity of germination and you might actually begin to lose plants. So if you're going to go through the process of prepping a little bit of a seed bed, putting the seed down, first thing you want to do is make sure you give it a good soaking. You want that seed to swell, absorb that water. And then from there, you're just simply trying to keep the soil moist. You're not trying to flood it. Just trying to keep that soil moist. So if you go back out and see that it's crusty, it's brittle and dry, it's time to irrigate again. So things like straw uh, are a great way to help preserve some moisture and can allow you to maybe get away with irrigating just once a day. So let me step back a little bit. Am, what should that soil look like? Am I doing anything to that soil when I'm putting that seed in or I'm just using the soil that's there and kind of raking it? Or what am I? how am I preparing that to put the seed on? And then is straw the thing that should go on there? Is that what is that the number one thing I should put on top of that grass seed to keep it moist? Doug, these are all great questions. Um, unfortunately, they're kind of those like answers where there's a little bit of caveats. Um, you know, if the areas that you're going to reseed, you notice that the reason that you're reseeding these is because the soil's poor. You know, and I observe this a lot when I go on lawns where maybe they had somebody come in and grind a stump. And that person brought in really poor soil to backfill with. And you're like, oh, I lose the grass in this place every year. And it's like, well, you know, I get my soil probe out and find that, well, there's no topsoil. This is cruddy subsoil. In that instance, you know, that's where you might want to amend the soil, bring in some organic matter and kind of mixing that into that upper layer. If, if you've maybe lost turf because of something you did, you know, maybe I sometimes see where people have cleaning solutions that they throw out into the lawn and, oh. and kill all the turf. Um, you know, if, if the soil's good, what I like to do is I'll rake out all the dead leaf litter. So if you all those dead plants, I take a, a leaf rake and try to get all that out. And then I'll loosen the soil as best I can. So um, I sometimes often use what's called a garden weasel. Uh, it's that yeah. thing that has the tines on it and you can roll it back and forth and that helps to break up that upper layer. And then uh, uh, I will put my seed down. And this is sometimes where I'll sprinkle some type of organic matter. It could be a garden soil, whatever it might be, but some rich, dark soil on top and, and rake that lightly in. And then to your question, I try... <laughs> There are different schools of thought. I really don't use straw if I can get away with it. If I have the ability to irrigate, um, I can get away without using straw um, because, because I can control the water through manually turning it off or using little nine volt timers on my hose bibs. If these are big areas that you've seeded that you simply cannot irrigate, like mother nature is going to have to provide the irrigation for me, those are places where I really like to use straw because it will help. It makes a huge difference. I've done a lot of studies looking at, you know, different covers and, you know, compared to other mulches and things, straw really is superior, but you do have to be careful. Straw can introduce undesirable species into the lawn if it's of low quality. So you're, you're kind of playing with a little bit of a double-edged sword, um, but to answer your question, you know, areas that are big and open, you can't irrigate them. Straw will definitely help uh, to get more uniform germination. If it's a small area in your yard where you have the ability to get the sprinkler out there and irrigate it, I don't think straw is necessary in those instances. So just to be clear, I mean, if as long as I could keep water on it, I don't have to have anything on top of it. 
whether it's compost or straw or anything, as long as that seed stays moist, I'm good. Yes, correct. And you know what a cycle might look like if you're going to go out there in, in mid-August, like we're talking about, and you see that the 10-day, there really is no rain. There are hot, warm days. I'm talking about running that system three to four times, and it might just be for five to 10 minutes each time. Again, we're not trying to totally soak. You shouldn't see standing water anywhere. You're just trying to keep the top of the soil uh, moist. And this is where if, if, uh, if you're someone who's really into your lawn, you know, these small nine volt timers that go on your hose bib, they are incredible. They really, they're perfect for things like this. And you can off that hose bib, you can put a Y adapter to where you maybe kind of have two zones, two sprinklers running, and it really can become hands off. You can program them and uh, you can kind of step back and let that do the work for you. And if you're anybody like me who has young kids running around and you're forgetful, it's pretty easy to forget to turn that sprinkler off. And, you know, you realize like, oh, boy, an hour later, I should only only wanted to run it for five minutes. Um, use your smart devices, whatever it is to say, set a timer for 10 minutes so that you don't forget. But yes, Doug, I'm kind of all over the place here. I get excited about this stuff. But um, <laughs> to your point, yes, if you have the ability to irrigate it, you don't necessarily need to put any type of straw or cover on. If you don't or you're someone who maybe isn't going to be as judicious as you need to be, then straw certainly will help to uh, kind of be an insurance policy that you'll preserve that soil moisture. All right, Zane. So if I am going to reseed or, or you know, put some seeds in these areas, what kind of seed should I be using? Uh, and and I, I never know what to do. And I see some, some of these seeds have like fillers and stuff in there. Is that good or bad or uh, school me yeah. on that? Yeah. A uh, lot of different schools of, of thought here. I'll, I'll give you what, you know, has been my experiences from my research and um, there's different scenarios. So if you have a sodded Kentucky bluegrass lawn, which in my opinion is kind of the Cadillac, that might be one of the highest quality lawns that you can find. You know, you have to be careful about what you put back in there. There are other species that are, you know, more coarse textured, uh, different colors. They're going to green up at different times of the year. So, you know, sodded Kentucky bluegrass is one of those where I really like to seed Kentucky bluegrass back in to straight stands of Kentucky bluegrass. Um, for areas that are in full sun that are mixed stands, uh, Doug, I have really gravitated towards the turf type tall fescue varieties. Uh, they are much lower input species compared to, um, compared, particularly compared to Kentucky bluegrass. They produce an extensive root system. Uh, they really do well in the heat and drought. And they establish relatively quick. Perennial ryegrass is the fastest establishing cool season grass. It germinates the quickest. It establishes really quick. And you'll see many of the seed mixtures that you will buy at the store contain a significant amount of perennial ryegrass um, because it does kind of fill in quickly. Um, from my experiences, though, perennial ryegrass, if you're going to use it as the only species in the lawn, it's really susceptible to a lot of diseases, um, leaf spots, red thread, dollar spot, pythium. So I do not like it as a standalone grass. It would only be a component. So Full sun, I'm a big fan of turf-type tall fescue. In the heavy shaded environments, this is where I would use the fine fescue varieties, mixtures that contain creeping red fescue, chewings fescue, and hard fescue. You'll see when you go to the store, 
and you buy uh, shade mixes, you'll see, I bet 30, 40, 50% of that bag might be perennial ryegrass. Perennial ryegrass has very little, if not any, shade tolerance. The only reason perennial ryegrass is put in that bag is so the customer looks and feels like they've got grass to grow. But in time, you'll see that perennial ryegrass isn't going to survive. It'll be the other parts of that bag that stay in. So uh, for me, I'm all about putting the right plant in the right place. So heavy shaded environments, I, I typically gravitate towards the fine fescues, full sun to moderate shade environments. I'm a big fan of the turf type tall fescue varieties. And if it's a straight Kentucky bluegrass lawn in full sun, I typically go back in uh, with Kentucky bluegrass. So how do I how do I find these seeds? Because it, a lot of times it's just like you said, it's just a shade mixture, you know. Over here in Pennsylvania, it would be Penn State mix. Penn State mix, yep. Yeah. Do I mean, will I see four or five different types of, if I go to a good nursery and, and read on that bag and look for exactly what I want, or am I mixing it myself? Or how would you, in where you're at in Worcester, Ohio, where would you go to get the seed that you wanted if you were just a regular homeowner? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I I go to people that deal in grass. So a lot of times your sod farms will also distribute seed. Um, so those are places high-end garden stores are going to have more of these um, kind of specifically blended varieties. But you go to a big box store, this is where you'll start to find a lot of these different species are kind of thrown in one bag. And that's often to help reach a price point, you know, because they're able You'll see that these different varieties, most of them are grown out in Oregon and they all have a different price tag. You know, as a big box seller, you're trying to reach a price point for your seed. So they're able to kind of go in and cherry pick the, the different varieties to get the price where it needs to be. And it doesn't always agronomically mean that it will be the best blend for your lawn. So for me, I typically turn people towards high end garden stores where I know um, there's going to be, you know, a good variety of these different mixtures. And then if you go to someone that really deals in grass seed, they're certainly going to have everything you need. Um, and again, that could be uh, sod farms from my experiences typically also sell seed. Those can be places that can really help you out. And they have ex- ex- you know, some expertise there to help put the right plant in the right place. I'm going to stop you right there, Zane. That's great information. Next week, I want to ask you about fertilizing and a problem I'm having with my own lawn. Thanks again. All right, we'll see you, buddy. Tune in every Thursday to the Talking Trees podcast from the Davy Tree Expert Company. I'm your host, Doug Oster. Well, Zane will be back next week to give us some more tips for summer lawn care, and I can't wait to talk to him. But do me a favor, subscribe to the podcast so you'll never miss an episode. As always, we like to remind you on the Talking Trees podcast, trees are the answer. <laughs>